Welcome to Investing Compass. Before we begin, a quick note that the information contained in this podcast is general nature. It does not take in consideration your personal situation, circumstances, or needs. So, Ma, are we or are we not going into the commodity cycle today? <laughs> okay, well, I, I don't know if people get that, but I swore on the last one. A minor editing issue. A minor, yes. So, you know, basically Will edits these and then we listen to them as like backup. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, a number of things happened. So I swore on it and said that we had to stop. Yeah. And then we didn't edit it out because I had to get on an airplane mm-hmm. and wasn't feeling my best. And I don't know what your Why excuse is. Why weren't you is. feeling your best? I had a big night celebrating Julia's promotion. Which is very exciting. Congratulations, Julia. I know. She got promoted to director, mm-hmm. um, which is really, really impressive. And yeah, there was a little too much celebrating. I messaged Mark at 7.30 that morning. His flight left at like 9 or 9.30. And he's like, I'm still in bed. <laughs> yeah. No, it was, it was great. I packed, not feeling my best. And I showed up there and the only clothes I brought were pink. Like all of them, pants, shorts, my bathing suit, (laughs) shirts. So I couldn't wear anything because I looked like, I don't know. Maybe you were just making a fashion statement. Yeah, not one that people liked. But anyway, (laughs) I'm sorry if my swearing offended anyone. It's a very big difference, I think, between like spending time with me in real life and these things that I do swear You swear all the time. (laughs) And we've done 94 episodes and I've only swore once. Exactly. I think that's a pretty good track record, 94 episodes in one slip up. Yeah, exactly. I did it on a live webinar too once Yeah, (laughs) where I forgot to turn off the camera and I used a very different word that time, which is not good. My mother sent me a message afterwards scolding me saying, you know, you're live. And I was like, well, yeah. I get it. It was a mistake. Anyway. Anyway, should we get to the episode? Yeah. Last episode of Share Month. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is. So it's our last share deep dive and we're going to talk about Westpac. And Westpac is a bank and we need to be clear that analyzing a bank is very different than analyzing other companies. So we're going to spend some time today talking about what is unique about a bank before we get into the specifics of Westpac. Yeah. So at the core of any analysis of a bank is the fact that they primarily profit from lending money out to people and businesses. And of course, they charge interest for that. So at this point, most people are probably thinking, no kidding, but bear with us for a second. So a bank can source those funds that they lend out from two primary places, and both have costs associated with them. So one is from customer deposits. The cost there is the amount of interest that they pay you. And the other is from going out and borrowing it themselves, where they have to pay interest, of course, to do that. So for those following along with our very basic analysis of a bank, you have probably come to realize that the amount of money a bank makes is the difference between these two numbers, the cost of accessing the funds for the bank and the amount they lend it out. This is called the net interest margin, and it's one of the most important measures of bank profitability. So let's spend a minute talking about the net interest margin. When interest rates go up, in general, the net interest margin will go up, which means that banks are more profitable. So banks are one of the few industries out there that generally perform better in a rising interest rate environment. And the reason for this is because they are generally quicker to pass along those increases in interest rates to customers 
than they are to pay them out to depositors. Another important thing about banks to remember is the amount they pay for funds from depositors is generally less than what they would pay if they needed to borrow the funds wholesale. Now, remember, these are all generalizations, which you should know because I said generally like 12 (laughs) times. So this seems like the perfect time to invest in a bank. Interest rates are clearly going up and banks will be more profitable. So this kind of seems like the end of the episode. Yeah, which would be good because I haven't sworn yet. (laughs) Um, But of course, not so fast, Shani. So we're talking about how much a bank makes on the loans that they make. And that is critical. But the volume of loans they make is also really critical. If you're looking at a non-bank company, you would look at revenue, how much of their goods and services they sell. With a bank, you were looking at loan volume. Is it growing or shrinking? So while interest rates going up may make each loan more profitable, it can also impact the volume. The whole point of a central bank increasing interest rates is to slow an overheating economy. In our case, right now, it is to significantly slow an overheating economy as we have the highest levels of inflation in a generation. In a growing economy, consumers and businesses are borrowing money and buying things, either investments in businesses or are just buying stuff because people are comfortable taking on debt because the economy is going so well. And that in a slowing economy, the opposite is happening. Consumers are worried about their jobs and trying to pay off debt. And businesses are not investing and may instead be downsizing by canceling projects and laying off workers. As the cost to service existing debt goes up, people can spend less, which further slows the economy. Also, in some cases, businesses and consumers are not only not borrowing more, but they are not paying off what they borrowed. And that's very bad for banks. Banks have reserves to account for bad debts. But if someone doesn't pay off their loan, that is a cost for the bank and affects their profitability. So to summarize, banks are complicated. In fact, analyzing banks is more complex than analyzing other companies. There are so many different factors that you have to explore, so many variables that come into play. Just looking at a bank's financial statement is so much more complex than a non-bank. As an investor in a bank, you're basically looking for interest rates going up, but not so far up that they slow the economy. You want consumers and businesses to borrow lots of money so your loan growth remains strong but you don't want them to borrow too much money or they might struggle to pay it off or not have any money left over to spend, which can slow the economy. And all of these factors at play have impacted Australian banks this year. And it has been a roller coaster ride with share prices. And we don't normally talk about the share price until the end of the episode. But in this case, I think it's worth mentioning because we can see the impact of these different factors at play. There's a lot of uncertainty in the market right now. Investors are trying to figure out how high interest rates will go. They're trying to figure out if central banks will have to put economies around the world into recession in order to get inflation under control. And as each new piece of data comes out, each inflation reading, each statement by a central banker, investors are readjusting their expectations. And this is why markets are bouncing around so much. And today's episode will focus on Westpac. I promise we'll get there. But let's look at CBA's share price. On the 28th of February, CBA closed at $93.46. By April 21st, it closed at $108.95. That's more than a 16.5% increase in around seven weeks. That was when investors decided that while interest rates were going up, which was good for banks, they weren't going up too much to throw the economy into a recession. But then by June 17th, which is again a little over seven weeks, the share price had fallen to $87.26. This is a drop of close to 20% as investors decided that central banks would throw the economy into a recession and heavily indebted Australians wouldn't be able to pay off their loans. Lots going on in the banking world, Mark. Yes. So 
This is on Westpac. Yeah. So we should turn our attention to Westpac. I think that's a good idea. Westpac's my (laughs) bank, by the way. Okay. Yeah. So There you go. Not very exciting. Shawnee banks with Macquarie. Mm -hmm. And the reason that I know that is because, and I don't remember why you got this, (laughs) but Shawnee got given a check for some reason. And like every other millennial out there- I have no idea what to do with it. no idea what to do with it, right? (laughs) Like it would have been giving like an iPhone to a caveman. And so I had to explain to her that, okay, you need to take this to the bank now and you have to sign the back of this and endorse it. So we went to the bank together. We did. You taught me how to cash a check. I know. And I I went up there and I said, can I cash this check? And he's just like, well, we technically can't cash it. We have to put it into your bank account. And I said, well, I've just heard that in movies. So. <laughs> yeah, it was, all, it was all very amusing. But anyway, back to Westpac. So, or I guess starting with Westpac, because yes. we haven't talked about it yet. So as everyone probably knows, there are four large retail banks in Australia. They're all primarily domestically focused, and that means they get the majority of their revenue in Australia. So Westpac is the second largest of those banks. So Westpac has streamlined its operations in the past few years and shed most of its non-banking divisions. So that includes investment management and insurance. So basically what we're looking at is a pure play bank that's focused on Australia. And in Australia, there's a lot of concentration among the big four banks. Westpac, CBA, NAB, and ANZ collectively control 75% of business and consumer lending and around the same amount of deposits. And the scale of each of these banks clearly dwarfs their small arrivals in an industry where scale and market share are an enormous competitive advantage. Not only are each of the big four at an advantage in the current environment, but it's also de facto locked in. The Australian government's four pillars policy prevents any of the four major banks from taking over each other, negating the risk of peers merging to gain greater scale and competitive advantages. And when we are talking about competitive advantage, we are, of course, talking about moats. And unsurprisingly, given what Shani just outlined, We have wide moats on each of the big four banks. That competitive advantage stems from two sources, cost advantages and switching costs. So why don't you start out by explaining why Westpac has cost advantages, and I can cover switching costs, which incidentally, Shani, is my favorite moat source. How how do you have a favorite moat source? (laughs) Well... (laughs) It's important to have a favorite moat source, number one. You should have one. And I'll I'll go through in more detail. But switching costs basically comes down to not doing something because it's hard and you are lazy. Okay. So I know why that resonates with you, but let's start with cost advantages. There are three places that cost advantages come into play with a bank. The first one we covered earlier when we talked about the cost to source funds that are lent out to people. Westpac gets 65% of their loan funding from depositors. Those are people like you and me who have bank accounts, and while they don't, do have to pay interest on savings accounts, they pay almost nothing on transaction accounts. That makes us a cheaper source of capital than going out to wholesale market and borrowing it. But even in the wholesale market, Westpac has advantages over smaller rivals. Westpac and the other big four banks enjoy strong credit ratings, which increases the sources of these wholesale funds and lowers the cost of borrowing them. And this, once again, has to do with the Australian banking system. Big four banks are considered by the market as too big to fail, meaning that people think the Australian government would step in if anything was going to happen to any of these banks. And since the Australian government has a strong credit rating, it contributes to the strong credit rating of Westpac. The other area we see cost advantages from scale in banking is in looking at fixed costs. The cost of money that is lent out is clearly important, but there are other costs associated with banking or any business. There are branches and salaries and technology costs. When we look at a bank, it's important to review the cost to income ratios. 
Large banks can disperse fixed costs such as branches, technology spend, compliance costs and support staff across a larger operating base, increasing operating efficiency. Westpac's able to do that. The last cost advantage that large banks with scale have is lower provisions for bad debts. Now remember that customers who don't pay back loans count as expense for banks. A large loan book, diverse by customer, region and sector, is an advantage. Larger banks also have the resources and data to support robust credit decisions, and this can lead to lower bad debts. And part of scale is also having lots of different products to offer customers, and this is the connection with switching costs. Your favorite. Yeah, no, exactly. So switching costs is a source of moat or competitive advantage because they make customers stickier. So if you control a big market share and your customers are reluctant to leave, that is a good thing. Switching costs basically mean that there is pain to switch so people don't do it. And once banks get their hooks in you with multiple products, it becomes harder and more time-consuming to switch. Once you set up direct deposit with your paycheck, bill pay, have all your friends' information set up so you can send them payments, becomes so much of a hassle to switch banks that most people won't do it. So the laziness moats. Yeah, no, exactly. And you shouldn't underestimate the investment opportunities around laziness, Shani. So that is a theme. I talked a lot about themes on this, how I hate them, but that's one That's one I could get behind. So laziness gave us Amazon and Uber Eats and Milk Run, gives us diet books and robot vacuums and electric bikes. You should be an investment manager and just do a Mark's laziness thematic ETF. Yeah. No, it'd be great. I'll charge a really high fee. Yeah. Um, beta shares will probably put it out. Yeah. It will be, uh, yeah, it will be great. Okay, so you're really on a roll, um, but why don't we get back to Westpac? Okay, so the competitive advantages from cost advantages and switching costs have allowed the big banks to earn above average return on capital for decades, and we expect this to continue into the future. Small regional banks, large foreign banks, and neobanks have been trying to compete with the big four for quite some time, and they haven't really been able to dent their dominance. For example, ING Bank Australia has held a banking license in Australia since 1994 and has amassed a total loan book of almost $68 billion and $48 billion in deposits. ING has around 3.5% of the home lending market, so it's not very impressive. No. I use ING too, though. How many banks do you use? Well, we don't want to get into the stuff in the US, but I use, <laughs> I use two banks here. Okay. So there okay. we go. Now you know all of our banking secrets. (laughs) Okay, so we've established that Westpac, along with their competitors, have a moat. That is good news for investors, but now we have to explore the price. As we mentioned, Westpac and the other banks have bounced around a great deal in price as investors assess the current economic conditions and what they mean for banks. Past year, Westpac is down around 19%, and a lot of that has been in the last month when the share price has fallen around 18%. And we talked about some of the factors that contributed to this, but our analyst thinks that while the fear of larger-than-expected loan losses is justified, the market is overly obsessed with the downside risk. Our analyst, Nathan, who covers banks for us, has already accounted for slower loan growth and higher loan losses than we've seen in the last couple of years. For instance, when we look over the industry as a whole, we assume credit growth slows to low single digits in 2023, with Westpac forecasts to grow 4% a year going forward. This compares with 8% in 2021 and the annualized rate of 6% in April 2022. We expect bag debts across the big four of $4.6 billion in 2023, and that compares with $3.7 billion in 2019. 
And even with these assumptions, we think Westpac is really undervalued. So Nathan has a fair value of $29 a share, and they're currently trading for around $19.75. Morningstar Investor is built for investors by investors. It provides independent research and data on over 40,000 securities, tools to build and maintain an investment portfolio, and investor education resources to support you, regardless of where you are in your investing journey. Explore opportunities with our monthly global best ideas. Explore our ETF model portfolios. Plan better with two years of dividend forecasts for ASX-listed stocks. Stay informed with independent thought leadership. We've built tools to help you construct, monitor, and maintain your portfolio, including our Portfolio Manager, integrated with one of Australia's leading portfolio tracking tools, ShareSight. Morningstar has been empowering investor success for over 35 years. We're passionate about your outcomes and are here every step of the way as you achieve them. Take out a free four-week trial to access our resources. Find the details in the episode notes. There are two other things that drive Nathan's valuations. He expects the net interest margin to average 2% going forward, which is a slight increase over where it was last year. More importantly, he expects profit growth to be driven by costs coming out of the business. And some of these costs have been one-time costs, like the huge penalty paid out for issues related to money laundering, divestments of key parts of the business, and large technology projects. But in total, Nathan expects the cost-to-income ratio to fall from 63% in 2020 to around 45% in 2025. Basically, he's just saying that the bank will become more efficient. And even better, he thinks in 2022, dividends will be $1.25 per share, which is up from $1.18 in 2021. And he thinks they'll hit $1.30 a share in 2023. And we know that people love dividends. Yes, we do, Shani. And I don't know, what's better than a dividend? (laughs) So let's talk a little about what could go wrong, because with any investment, the downside is important to at least contemplate. Well, I think this is all about housing and all about the Aussie consumer. Since the Royal Commission, all Australian banks have become more reliant on home loans. Other businesses have been sold off, and that means we're really looking at four banks that are playing primarily in the mortgage space. Big four banks have total loan books of $2.9 trillion, and $1.87 trillion of that is mortgage exposure. And this is a fundamental multi-decade shift in the banking business. So in 1986, well before Shawnee was born, two-thirds of all Australian loans were to businesses. In 2022, two-thirds of all loans are for mortgages. And in so many ways, the obsession with real estate has fundamentally changed the economy. You know, not to mention the political system, Mm. where, you know, any move that may impact housing prices is completely untouchable by politicians. But maybe we should save our observations about housing for another episode. And that can be our last episode as I think everyone will then just turn against us, right? If we don't (laughs) genuflect at the altar of housing being the only ticket to financial security. But anyway, what is pertinent to this conversation is people who own homes and are not financially secure. Because of course, we're talking about a company that issues 22% of home loans in Australia. And this is where we need to look at mortgage stress. It's no secret that Australians are heavily in debt, and this is getting more extreme as housing prices continue to go up. In fact, APRA data shows this. One million home loans written over the past two years to over 280,000 Australians are in excess of six times or more than or more than their income levels and or they have a loan-to-value ratio of more than 90%. And these are the homeowners that are vulnerable to rising rates and vulnerable to falling housing prices. 
So we've all seen the estimates on drops in housing in capital cities, especially Sydney and Melbourne, which if they happen, would put many of these homeowners underwater where they owe more than their house is worth. So the extreme downside here is that the combination of high interest rates and higher inflation make it unaffordable for many of these vulnerable homeowners to pay their mortgages, which means that in many cases they'll either sell if they think they can pay back the loan or potentially default. And these vulnerable homeowners are the ones without the savings that Philip Lowe likes to point out. And they don't have offset accounts and don't have home equity because they just purchased their homes and likely had to stretch to do that. Buying those houses caused them to spend all their savings and they haven't built up any equity because they just haven't had the time to. Yeah, and we've seen this play out before in the GFC in the US. And a couple things to note here. The first is that in aggregate, things look pretty good. So as Shani mentioned, we've heard Philip Lowe talk about this when he points out the record savings by Australians during COVID and says this will cushion the blow of higher interest rates. And Nathan points out in his research report when he says that households are sitting on record offset account balances with about 70% ahead of monthly repayments, with over 40% of those more than 12 months ahead, and the average loan-to-value ratio in the 45 to 50% range. He also points out how strong banks are from a capital perspective, and it's capital that banks hold that allows them to deal with loan losses. That's how they absorb these losses. Banks have 50% more capital than they had going into the GFC. And opera requires banks to hold more capital in Australia than many global markets. In fact, Australian banks are in the top quartile of capital of similar banks globally. So all that is good. But as investors, we don't just want banks to not fail. We want them to prosper. So I think in a downside scenario, the worry may not be failure, but instead that two things happen. We see a wave of selling from these vulnerable borrowers, which starts bringing down housing prices. And remember that housing prices are set by the margin because there aren't all that many transactions that occur each month compared to the total number of houses. We saw this during the GFC in the US. So if we have new buyers priced out of the market by higher interest rates and vulnerable borrowers selling homes where they have little equity, we could see a problem with housing prices dropping significantly. And all of a sudden we start to see this hit as lending volumes go down and loan losses creep up. And this is where we need to talk about the benefit that rising house prices have on banks. If housing prices drop by, let's say, 20%, that means that a bank could write the exact same amount of mortgages, but their total loan value in mortgages would be 20% lower because the housing prices would be lower. And therefore, the mortgage amount per house would be lower. Investing is ultimately about risk and reward. In the case of Westpac, we think investors are being more than compensated for the risk they are taking on. Westpac trades at over 30% discount to our fair value as the cheapest of the big four banks in our view. We think Westpac is still in the doghouse with investors from a general consensus that it isn't as well run of a business as other banks. A huge anti-money laundering penalty of $1.3 billion and a spike in loan losses in 2020. There was a large fall in earnings, which has been exasperated by a seemingly never-ending list of one-off costs that further hit earnings. And a lot of these one-offs have just dis- disappointed investors. There are charges to fix their risk management system, overhaul technology systems, divest businesses, and remediate customer issues. And still, throughout all of this, all of these charges, they have an uncompetitive loan processing and rising operating expenses when you compare, compare them to their peers. And all these problems have caused management to keep going back to the well with more equity raises, which increased shares on issue by 10% over the past five years. So this sounds really negative. But many of these problems are in the past. And of course, 
all we care about as investors is the future. This may be a case where expectations are so low for Westpac and management of Westpac that it won't take much for them to exceed those expectations. If our forecasted economic scenario plays out and investors start to trust Westpac's management again, we could see a good opportunity for investors. And that is why it's on our best ideas list. The other question we need to ask, and that we are big proponents of on Investing Compass, is how do you know this investment is right for you? So let's spend a minute on that. As we've hopefully demonstrated during this podcast, the fate of the banks and the fate of the Aussie housing market are linked. A significant drop in housing prices could be an issue for the banks. They could suffer from higher credit losses, and it would be hard to maintain any growth in loan volumes if mortgages are smaller due to cheaper purchase prices. So what are the implications for investors? So I think there's two things to think about. The first is that banks are generally very cyclical companies, meaning that they are linked to the business cycle. In Australia, because of the greater reliance on mortgage lending, we need to modify that for the reasons that Shani outlined above and say it isn't just about the business cycle, but really about the fate of housing. So as investors, we want to look holistically at our wealth and what the drivers are. So let's use an extreme example. Let's say you're a real estate agent or a home builder, and a good portion of your net worth is in investment properties with a high loan-to-value ratio where your goal is capital appreciation and not income. Should you put a lot of your portfolio into banks? Well, that's, of course, up to you. But that is putting a lot of eggs in one basket. And the banks are certainly more diversified and less risky way of getting exposure to Aussie real estate than buying a single investment property. But just remember to look at things holistically and how something fits into your overall net worth. All right. I did not swear at all. No. (laughs) You didn't. And we made it through. This officially marks the end of Share Share Month. month. How do you feel? I I don't know. Just just regular regular month to go. Yeah. We have a schedule. We have your detailed schedule. So (laughs) we'll we'll start getting into that. I was just testing you to see if you actually read it. Um, I don't remember what's on. Okay. But, you know, we'll figure it out. <laughs> but anyway, thank you guys very much for joining us for Share Month. So we looked at four different businesses that we thought were pretty different and hopefully provided some perspective on how you want to look at these different businesses. And then we released three foundational episodes that we thought are really, really important to look at, especially as we've still seen volatility in the share market. So thanks for Share Month. Maybe we'll make this an annual thing, Shani. I don't know if June should always be share month, but we'll, we'll figure it out. But anyway, thank you guys for joining. We would love any comments or ratings or to pass along the podcast to your friends and family. Any advice in this podcast is general advice or regulated financial advice under New Zealand law prepared by Morningstar Australasia Proprietary Limited and or Morningstar Research Limited without reference to your financial objectives, situations or needs. You should consider the advice in light of these matters and any relevant product disclosure statement before making any decision to invest. To obtain advice for your own situation, contact a financial advisor.